Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation on some lessons from translating the Second Testament. So Scott, you know, you're kind of working on, uh, you know, kind of a minor project, I guess, a little bit translating the new testament did i hear something about that that you're working on this yes yes that's uh that's my new project i'm uh definitely anything but a small project uh, <laughs> that's a big sure. project yes and it's uh it it gets complicated at times really complicated well okay i'll, I'll tell you the story i've i have used uh the english translation of the audience that i'm speaking to as my general principle. So if I'm at a church and they're using the NRSV, I use the NRSV. If the church is using an NIV, I use the NIV. I have not yet spoken in a church that uses the common English Bible, but I expect that to happen uh, sometime in the future. So, and and uh, of the recent translations, I really enjoyed uh Tom Wright's new translation, the Kingdom New Testament. I I thought it's smooth and flows nicely, and it's kind of catchy at times. So I was excited when John Goldingay's Old Testament translation came out, which he calls the First Testament. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have to confess that I had not read any of his little commentaries that go along with it because Tom Wright did the Bible for everyone or something like that. And he translated the new Testament and that became the kingdom new Testament. And so they contracted an entire old Testament commentary series with John Goldingay. And he translated the old Testament to do that, which is a lot bigger project than the new Testament and Hebrew to boot. I mean, Uh, he's uh, really good. He's just really fluid with Hebrew. So he's, he's pretty good. I mean, he's, as good in uh, Tom Wright is as good in Greek as John Goldingay is in Hebrew, but there's just a lot more words. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, but I never looked at John's commentaries. Uh, so I never saw any of his translation, but when it came out, uh, it came out bound together with Tom Wright's called the Bible for everyone. And I immediately started reading John Goldingay. And I thought to myself, this, two things came to my mind. Number one, this is not at all the theory of translation that Tom Wright was using in his The Kingdom New Testament, which was far more of a dynamic equivalence. John Goldingay was doing a couple things that I found very stimulating. The first is he stuck much closer to Hebrew expressions so that it didn't sound as Englishy. And at times, um, Golden Gay's translation is difficult and it's difficult because the Hebrew is difficult. What we do many times in, in our English translation is take very complex, convoluted, difficult, incomplete uh, sentences. Sometimes words are implied and you have to kind of guess what they are. We just go along with our translations because we've made it very suitable and clear in English. Golden Gate doesn't do that. The other thing that I really like 
well, there's two more things I really like. One is he transliterated Hebrew names. So you don't get, uh, say, for instance, uh, Ezekiel. You get Yezekiel. And uh, so all these names all of a sudden become really peculiar. And the names in the in Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, because there's so many different names used, can can really be confusing. But it's much closer to the original text. We have anglicized so many of those names. Um, so, like uh, to take the New Testament, uh, we we say the letter was written by James. James is a trans an English version of Iacomus. And that's and the Latin forms, and the original Greek says Yaakov, Yaakobas, and um, the Hebrew says Yaakov. So uh, Golden Gate is going to have Yaakov, and the New Testament has Yaakobas, and I have used Yaakobas rather than James. Because it makes you realize this is a Hebrew guy. This is, I mean, a a Jewish guy with a Hebrew name. So he did that. The other thing he did, and and this to me was perhaps the most clever, is he did his best to avoid religious terms being translated with conventional religious terms. So, for instance, in my translation, the, uh, and and I, I confess that I'll make global changes the closer I get to the end, because I'm constantly making global changes, is you take a word like holy, um, kadosh in Hebrew, and you get uh, hagias in Greek. What does this word mean? Well, you translate it holy and you're safe and it's conventional, and it's an instinct to translate it that way. And we think the word holy is going to convey what it should convey. The problem is uh, holy is so religious and so common and so used that people slide by it. And um, I use the word devoted. Uh, I don't use the word holy. Uh, you, ha- you know, you ha- we get into debates. You, yeah, you, why not like set apart? I know that's a a technical definition that I've heard. Yeah, before. well, I've I've written about this in a number of places. the The Hebrew word and the Hebrew idea of holiness is is not translating it set apart is not accurate enough. And here's why: in the Old Testament, in ancient in ancient Israel, God alone was holy. So holiness is about God and God's presence. So God is not holy because God is set apart in that sense. God is holy because God is holy. And therefore, things that approach God must be sanctified or made holy to be in the presence of God. And in being sanctified or devoted to the presence of God, these things are separated from what is common. So to set apart is what I would call the third element of holiness. And when you define it that way, it becomes negative rather than the uh, altogether glorious idea that holiness is about the presence of God. God is holy and and whatever is in his presence must be 
holified. Um, things are devoted to God's presence, and things that are devoted to God's presence are pulled from their common or ordinary usage. By the way, Golden Gay uses the word ordinary for things that are common rather than, or, or unclean or profane. I think the NIV translates some things profane and Golden Gay translates it as ordinary. And that would be it. Things that are ordinary are picked up and devoted to God who alone is holy and everything in God's presence is holy. So therefore those things become, are devoted to God and become holy and are set apart. So these are the sort of considerations that are at work when I'm making, when I'm translating. Now, here's another one that was really, that has been really, really difficult. Um, I recently read John Walton's book on, on the lost world of the law or something like that. And uh, it was a fun book. I like to read these books by John Walton. Uh, some of them have been just so, they're barnstormers for me. Uh, swashbuckling in that sense. They're just so full of life and suggestion. Well, when I swashbuckling, I have never heard that term. That's a good word. You're going to have to look it up. That's why I'm going to have to look it up. Good thing I'm in a library. I just go to the Gold, Golden now. Gate used this for one of my D-Min students, D-Min thesis. Uh, Kristen Marvel wrote a marvelous thesis, and he said it's swashbuckling. So, okay, so, so I read this book by Go by John Walton on law, and I become convinced there is no way the English word law can translate all that is implied in either the Old Testament or the New Testament when it uses these words. So in the Old Testament, the standard Hebrew word is Torah. Golden Gate translated, translated, translates it as instruction. So Moses is, it's not Moses's law, it's Moses's instruction which is, it's Moshe, not Moses. So that's a pretty good translation for Torah. Uh, but the Greek word is not instruction, which would be didache or something like that, teaching. It is namas, which is closer to the sense of law. But in what sense is it law? Is it stipulation? Hmm. Is it legislation? Is it uh, legal ordinance? Um, is it uh, rules? Is it, uh, uh, you know, in other words, what happens when it, it goes into English and when it goes into Greek? Furthermore, the Greek word namas is being used by Jesus and Paul for the Old Testament instruction or Torah. And that Old Testament instruction was for people who were covenanted with God. So I have gone back and forth should I use the word instruction? And I have had that word in my translation. And I toy with it. And I every time I come across the word namas in the New Testament, I, I think, well, uh, does instruction work? I finally became convinced that instruction does not work for the New Testament. So, uh, and I'm, I'm for one word whenever possible. But on this one, I have violated that, that simple 
guiding principle that I've been using of using one word. And I'm translating the Greek word namas as covenant obligation. Okay. Because it well, is, uh, you know, that I brings like in it. a lot of E.P. Sanders there, like our pre- in our previous conversations. I think he would probably uh, like that yes, translation. Uh, but that's okay. I want you to know something, Chaz. You're getting me in trouble. Right. Covenant <laughs> obligation is not a new perspective view of the law. Okay. Um, it is. It is a. Uh, it's an attempt to clarify what Namas would have meant for Jesus and for mm. Paul. It's covenant people's obligation because they have they are in the covenant with Yahweh, and therefore they have an obligation to obey God. Uh, if I were to translate it as Sanders, it'd be covenant maintenance or something like that. Mm, okay. uh, it's to maintain one's relationship. So uh, covenant obligation to me clarifies it. And that's where I am right now with it. And uh, every day that I'm translating that that word comes up, namas, I think about it again. So I'm not saying that's going to be the final translation but I've gone, I've been toying with this for a long time, uh, probably six months that I've been toying with <coughs> how best to translate namas. <coughs> and this you is know, where I am right now. Yeah, you know, I found that just so fascinating, the whole process and being a New Testament student and, um, you know, being in your classes and know, appreciate how you pretty much just teach right from the Greek um, text when you're going through a passage or something like that. And so you've <laughs> been in the New Testament translating it for your whole career. But I wonder in this new approach, and I think it's a, actually a very valuable contribution that it's going to make in having a, a new translation, um, because I love I try to read through the Bible in a year and every year I usually try to take a different translation because I think it's so <clears> much um, about having just a full perspective on things that maybe sometimes we miss or overlook or like you guys are you're doing or kind of trying to strip away the religious terms that sometimes just get so loaded that they become unhelpful in our understanding of the original meaning. And so I wonder in this process for you, what have been maybe some new observations that, that you have seen um, fresh from the text or um, just lessons in general that you've kind of gained from walking through this, being in this about six months, I think, or so, maybe a little bit more. Um, what are some things that you've learned and gained as a result of it? Well, one thing uh, that I've learned is that uh, translation is far more complicated than than the typical Greek uh, student, the typical pastor, uh, even the one who is a, a New Testament professor thinks it is. Because uh, once you uh, say, I, I'm, I'm locking down on a translation here, uh, you become vulnerable to people looking over your shoulder. Um, and so, you, you know, when, when I'm translating a text in class, I can, I can transliterate. I can uh, paraphrase, I can clarify, but when I'm just translating, it's different. So it's mm-hmm. it's pretty complicated. The second thing is I have tried to follow Golden Gate's principle. And I've, I've used some of his translations just to keep the continuity between the two. Uh, and mine is going to be called the Second Testament. I have tried to do what I can to have one English word for one Greek word. 
And this is um, this is both more doable than I thought, and secondly, it is not always possible. Yeah. So, uh, parakalo, parakalao in the Greek New Testament uh, can uh, we can translate paraklesis, etc., as exhortation or encouragement. Well, there's a huge difference there. It's the same Greek word. And I have really worked hard to see if I can say encouragement every time. Well, it really works in 2 Corinthians 1, and other times it just doesn't work at all. And, and exhortation, you know, the God of all exhortation exhorts us so that we can become exhorters of one another. I don't think that that's going to work. So right. the text uh, has to prove to me that a single English word for a single Greek word won't work. I'm doing this so that people who are reading the New Testament in my translation, in the Second Testament, will be confident that when they see a word and they've seen it another time, they'll know it's the same Greek word. Most translations are promiscuous with this, and they will give the, the English, they'll give the translation a sense that makes most sense in English. And so therefore they will, the translations will adjust the Greek word to something that they think is more of a dynamic equivalent in English. And the next thing you know, you've got seven Greek words getting the same English word. All right. So for instance, in the Beatitudes, you know, we have the word, I'm looking at my translation now. Blessed. Um, you know, the common English Bible has happy. Yeah. Makarios, right? Is the Makarios, uh, Makarioi. Uh, it's used in the plural there, but uh, Makarioi, the plural, the they are blessed, the blessed ones. But what does blessed mean? And who's doing the blessing? So I've I've translated this, God blesses the meager spiritual because uh etc and so god blesses the grievers god blesses the meek god blesses because this is a blessing from god i think that's that's a little clearer and closer to what the text means than just blessed mm-hmm. here here's another one how do you translate words like kingdom well, well that's a big one for you yeah, I mean, you've got it all over Matthew, Mark, and Luke. you got a little bit of it in Paul. Um, Basileia. Do we translate this word kingdom and just let people figure out what it means? Or do we, we use a term uh, that is a little more in touch with first century realities? Okay, so this is a very interesting word. In the first century... Local kings had a kingdom, but there was one kingdom that was over all of it, and that was the Roman Empire. And the question is, um, how do we translate Basileia in that context? And so I have used the word empire, God's empire, because I think that Jesus uses this term in a way that that uh, stands over against 
uh, Roman realities that are present in Galilee and Judea and over against Roman endorsement of Jewish realities of rule. So Herod the Great has a kingdom, etc. Uh, so I, uh, but but it has that empire connection. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm I'm toying with that word. I this is this is not an unusual translation. There have been a lot of people who've suggested that Basileia could be translated with empire, and so I'm right now I have that as my translation. How much do you um, rely on things like a theological dictionary? Um, you know, say the first one that comes to mind for me that I would usually go to is like a Kittle or something like that. How much yeah. of those are involved in your process? Well, Chaz, I uh, I look up virtually every Greek word in the lexicon only because I want to see what's going on in the lexical world. Yeah. And I am using three lexicons. All right. The first one is Liddell and Scott which is a monster Greek lexicon of the classical world. I use a new one by the name, the editor's name is Franco Montanari. It's called the Greek English Brill Dictionary of Ancient Greek. And it's amazing that it has uh, the same abbreviation, letters as Bauer, Art, and Gingrich, or Bauer, Danker, Art, Gingrich. So both of them can be translated uh, or tra- uh, use the acronyms of BDAG, which is goofy. And I don't know why Brill did that, but they they certainly confused it. And here's, here's something that I've, I look up almost every word, and I want to see how that word is used in the classical world. One of the things that irritates me as I've seen in translating that Bauer, Danker, Art, and Gingrich, BDAG, the best New Testament Greek lexicon, um, has developed what I call sometimes incestuous meanings, is that some time ago, somebody decided that the, that this Greek word, um, though in the classical world it means X, in the New mm-hmm. Testament it means this, and now everybody translates it that way. But when you look at the classical world, you realize it probably never meant that. Would grace fit into that category? Um, Charis? Pr- probably not. Charis, you can translate that as grace or gift. Yeah. Um, Dorama. Yeah, I, I, I would say the problem with grace, I mean, this is a great word uh, in the New Testament. And I've left it as grace because I think that's the best word for it. Um, is that it has developed theological barnacles. Mm -hmm. And so therefore it has all kinds of senses and uh, echoes and intonations that might not be a part of that word. Um, But now that John Golden, uh, John uh, Barclay has published that huge book on this, I think that there's a a real shift. I mean, here's another good example. Uh, uh, Matthew Bates has suggested that the Greek word pistis um, may not always, well, may not, certainly does not always mean faith as single trust. Right. And so he suggests that the word often means allegiance. Well, I have that, I have allegiance with a number of my translations. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
so that's that's uh, that that's some of the suggestions that uh, are I'm learning. Yeah. Um, so I, here's what I want to say about the lexicon: mm-hmm. is I I would encourage people uh, not to believe with absolute certainty the translations of BDAG or the or the the Bauer Danker Art Gingrich lexicon. But check other lexicons to see what other meanings would have been common usage in the ancient world. Mm. So, yeah, tedious but important work. Speaking of words, I want to make sure that we get to a question from a listener. Alex Whitaker asks, how will you translate ethnos? What considerations surround this decision in your mind, especially in Matthew 28? I assume he's talking about um, probably the Great the Commission. Great Commission. It's a pretty important Commission. passage in the New Testament. Uh, the Great Commission in uh, typical translation is, uh, um, let's see, the NIV translates the go and make disciples of all nations. The NRSV has make disciples of all nations. And the Common English Bible has make disciples of all nations. And the Second Testament says, go make all the nations into apprentices. I don't translate the word mathetes, uh, mathetai, as disciples, because I think that word's too religious. And I'm using the term that my friend James Bryan Smith uses, apprentice. So uh, I think that ethnos means, uh, I don't think it means uh, Gentiles. I think it means nations. And I I would use, I'm going to use that as my translation. So in the Pauline letters, uh, when he's, I don't use the word Gentiles. I use the word nations. But there are times when it seems to mean Gentiles versus nations, but I think nations is a good translation. That makes sense. So we talked a lot about different specific words. I wonder if you have any phrases. I know, like you said, one of Golden Gay's principles is to not um, have a dynamic equivalence to try to explain away some clunkiness that may be there in the Hebrew. Um, And then for you, for the Greek, I know you're trying to do something similar. Are there any common phrases that you kind of keep coming to or that whole, um, you know, bigger picture about what, what phrases that you may have come that that you find fascinating? Well, um, I hear, here's what I've translated. Uh, I started by working through Matthew as sort of my template for working out theory of what I'm going to do and how it actually, I had ideas. I think I had pretty good ideas, but once you start doing it, uh, things start getting more specific. Uh, you know, how do you do participles before verbs, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't, I don't want to turn participles into verbs, which is the common trick of English translations. Uh, I want to leave participles in some form of, uh, a non-finite form. So uh, I don't translate he went. I say going, something like that. All right. So uh, I started with Matthew. Then I did Romans because I wanted to work out. I've been tr- I've been working on Romans for a couple of years. So I wanted to go there, which is a peculiar place to start. Then I did first and second Corinthians. And I feel like by doing Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 
I'd worked out uh, a feel for Paul, how Paul operates. And I don't want Paul to feel like Matthew. I don't want Paul to feel like Hebrews. I don't want Matthew to feel like Luke. I don't want Luke to feel like Matthew. So I want to give respect to each author's style and way of operating. Then I did, then I went back and did Mark. Uh, and then I did uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and I'm about to start Colossians. I'll do First and Second Thessalonians. Then I'm going to go do Luke, then Acts, and then the pastoral epistles, because I want to I see if I can feel what many people think is true. And I think I have felt it, but I want to uh, do it by way of concrete experience over time as to whether Luke may have been the uh, editor or the amanuensis or the mm. secretary for Paul when the pastorals were written. And then I'll go back and do John and the rest of the New Testament. Um, what, uh, I've tried, uh, Chaz, I have tried to let each author's style feel the way that author writes, rather than to make them more English than they are and make them feel alike. Mark does not feel like Matthew, that yes, there are overlaps. And I've, uh, this is an interesting thing, and I, I need to sit down someday and just see if the NIV and the NRSV and the CEB actually do this. If Matthew, Mark, and Luke have identical Greek, I am going to make sure the English in my translation is identical. Mm, that seems important. Uh, I'm not going to let a word in Matthew influence how I translate Mark. But I don't want to uh, just say, well, it, this is the way I feel in English right now, so that I have identical Greek expressions with two different English translations, which is very common. And it's easy to do uh, if you haven't looked at the two identical expressions in six months. Let's say I did Matthew one day, and then six months later I did Luke. Uh, I might not remember. So I'm, I have to uh, pull out my synopsis and compare the translations very carefully. And it took a long time to do Mark because I had to compare it to Matthew every time. And it made me edit Matthew back at times. So uh, things like justification by faith, um, terms that are common in Paul in his theological dynamic, uh, works of the law, all these things have to be worked out uh, with rigor and care and consistency, which is the consistency is very hard to achieve. Chaz, this is oh, a common expression for a common experience for me. I'll pick up a very common, let's just say I'll, I'll pick up Colossians and I'll uh, look at verse five and I'll look at the expressions and say, well, I know how to translate that. But I, I pull out my concordance, which fortunately is on the computer and I pop up the Greek word and I see how I've translated that Greek word every time in the New Testament that it appears that I've already translated so that I can maintain consistency. Hmm. So there is a lot of really tedious, um, you know, rigorous uh, examining of how a Greek word is used so that I try to maintain consistency. 
Well, yeah, I believe that it's tedious and I appreciate your hard work and diligence in this. And I think it's fascinating, you know, your approach with really letting each author have their own style um, while maintaining continuity in, in language and word choice throughout the New Testament. Um, I guess my final question would be to wrap up our time as, you know, you set out and do this, obviously people are going to be reading this work that you're translating. Um, I imagine the unique style of each author is one of the things that you hope readers walk away with. What, as people read your translation, what are some things that you hope that they walk away with from um, reading your approach to translating the Second Testament? I hope people have the same experience that I've had reading Golden Gate. I'm now in the middle of Ezekiel. I've read the whole Old Testament up through Ezekiel, so I only have, oh, maybe 100 pages left of his translation. Um, number one, I, w I want people to be surprised. I go, oh, I don't. I want people to feel unfamiliar. I want them to read something and go, wow, I don't, I don't know that I've ever read that before. And then they look at the English translation and go, oh, I've read it 100 times but I didn't realize it could be translated like that. Uh, I want people to be um, stimulated enough that they'll go, I'm not so sure I would translate it that way. And that is a moment that every translator should want to happen because then the reader is engaging the text at a deeper level. Uh, so surprises, stimulations and uh, the experiencing of of the bible in a way that you go oh i'm not sure uh that makes i'm not sure i remember that so i'm reading golden gay right now and ezekiel he translates ben adam uh translated in every translation son of man or son of adam he translates it young man well when I saw that one, really, young man, Ben, well, Ben does mean son, and it could be the son of a man. Uh, yes, it could be a young man, um, but it's unusual, and it made me think, and it's not the same as Baranash, Baranasha, Barnasha in Daniel 7, which becomes Jesus being the son of man. Uh, and probably that's one of the reasons he wanted it to, to be different and sound different, because he didn't want people to equate the son of man of Ezekiel with the son of man of Daniel 7. I don't know. I haven't asked John. Uh, but I would say that that sort of experience is exactly what I'm looking for in uh, hoping that people will, will uh, be thinking again about what the New Testament says. Wow. That's, that's, that's great. And I'm sure it, hopefully this conversation already spurred that. Maybe you go into whatever translation you're using now and you start to investigate a little deeper because that's what we hope to happen. So, uh, well, thanks for all your hard work, Scott. I um, definitely want you to know I'm cheering you on. We're all cheering you on because it's probably something that I'd never do to translate the whole New Testament. Yeah, it's a big project, but uh, I've, I've loved it yeah. and I want people to pray for me. Well, so, Yes, we are. I am. Hopefully everybody else listening will as well, um, because we know it's no small undertaking. So, 
Uh, well, thank you for uh, joining us today. Really exciting to get to talk. Just this update. Hopefully you find it fascinating as I do and just the process and um, some of the different things Scott's learning. And um, like we had six months ago, you know, we, we had a, a little bit of a foundation. If you'd want to go back and listen to that, we get into a little bit more of really the history of translation and the different translations that are out there. Um, I'll include a link to that show in the show notes, but we're grateful to have you join us and look forward to join you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Thank you.